struggle with the value in what I was doing. I knew like the greater value that, you know, being an Olympic athlete and, you know, the inspiration that this offered to, you know, our culture. But my whole life growing up, I always wanted a career that was in service of something bigger. Welcome to Humboldt. I'm Kristen Haraldsdotter, your host. And I'm Aaron Ernst, the producer of Humboldt. On today's podcast, I talked to Betsy Armstrong, who's the most decorated goalkeeper in international women's water polo history. And she's also one of the major reasons behind the success of the U.S. women's water polo team. She really is an incredibly talented athlete, and her ability to make spectacular saves under immense pressure is really credited with helping the U.S. national team rise to fame and to its first Olympic gold medal in 2012. Do just a tiny bit of research online and you'll see what a force of nature Armstrong really is. And she's got a huge wingspan. She actually said it's been measured at some point and it was longer than she is tall, which is amazing if you see how tall she is. Very cool. Betsy talked about her incredible career, including heartbreak at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and redemption in 2012 in London. She's now trying to find a larger meaning in her accomplishments and trying to figure out how they fit into the context of what's next for her. She talks about how becoming a mother right after retiring made the transition to what's next a lot more challenging. And Kristen, I learned something new about you on this episode. Your dog Monkey actually owes her life to water polo. Yeah, and that may not seem like an obvious connection, so you're going to have to listen to the episode. So here it is, my interview with Betsy at her house in Rhinebeck, New York. Hi. Someone wants to say hi to you really very quick. That's okay. Oh, that's okay. Come here, Frankie. Look at this. Hi. Look, it's a studio. I'm Kristen. Kristen, this is my husband, Chris. Hi, nice to meet you. Frankie, say hi. Can you come here? Hi, Frankie. Say hi. You want to do I see. You want to see the microphone? There's two microphones. Hey, Maxie. Max is the little one. I'll give her a little thing. I've taken over your house. I'm sorry. First of all, I just want to thank you for letting me come bombard you at home <laughs> and interview you and talk about all these pretty personal, um, up close and personal topics because it's super exciting. It's an honor for me to get to be here. It's, it's very, very cool. Um, and I wanted to start really generally, really broadly, because I was reminded, and I myself am super naive, and I'm sorry about that, I don't know water polo. Mm -hmm. I was once, um, I had a roommate who was a water polo player at Princeton, and actually, this is a a silly story, but my dog, whom I love very, very much, Monkey, Mm -hmm. um, I got her from a girl who had been Phoebe Champion. I don't know. You never know. Yeah, I do know Phoebe Champion. No way. Yeah, I do. Okay, so I got... Not well. I mean, we. it's a small world. You know, yeah. water polo is a small sport in actuality. Like, the, the community is pretty small. So. Yeah, she played in Europe for a while, I mm-hmm. think. Anyway, okay. so long story short, I got my dog through her. They were going to put my dog down. Or she wasn't my dog at the time. But the mm-hmm. next day, you know, she was on the kill list. Yeah. So I got her through Phoebe Champion. And, and then I my one of my roommates um, right after college was a water polo player. But really, I don't know much. Do people often ask you, like, why water polo? Like, it's it seems kind of random, and I know that sounds offensive to anyone who plays no, water polo. No, it doesn't. I totally understand it. Now, especially that I'm, you know, in this post-water professional water polo life, living in upstate New York, it's it's uh, definitely not your sport that you come across every day. Yeah. Um, and 
so I do get asked that a lot. And I, you know, I got into the sport. I, I grew up in Michigan of all places where, you know, is not typically your hotbed for water polo, but my older sister played. Um, she was uh, four years ahead of me and she was a swimmer and a water polo player. And I sort of did everything she did. And it was a, a new sport at the time. And we had a few coaches that helped really develop it throughout the state of Michigan. And that's how I, you know, kind of got tagged along and, or I tagged along and, you know, got to try it out. Were you successful right away? Did you know that there was like a future for you in it or kind of what drew you to it? Yes and no. So I, um, you know, my older sister was really good. Like she was a real, she's a goalkeeper as well. And she was really good. And, um, you know, at the time that I was starting in high school was right around, there was a lot of kind of word on the street that the university of Michigan was going to ha- turn water polo into a varsity sport. At that time, it was only a club sport. Um, and they were one of the most successful women's clubs. Like they had won national championships like 10 years in a row or something. And, um, so programs were being added, you know, having grown up in Ann Arbor, a lot of people go to Indiana, Indiana university had a varsity program. Um, the Ivy leagues, you know, you had Princeton, Harvard and Brown, I think at the time all had a varsity program. And, um, so, you know, the sport was growing and we were, you know, I think with women's sports in general, colleges were adding programs and, um, you know, it was at that time that I started playing and I did get identified at a young age, probably not until my sophomore year in high school, I got selected to like, a like a C team or something for like the youth for some type of youth showcase tournament, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was on the radar of like the national pipeline. Um, but even that whole system within USA water polo was kind of changing and growing in different ways. So, so in 2004, you're an undergrad still, and you're playing water polo, but you also have these other kind of competing identities. How did you, so somebody asks, Hey Betsy, um, what do you do? Or who are you? What, like, what, do you, what did you tell people? How did you introduce yourself to people? Uh, in 2004, I, you know, I probably probably did identify as a water polo. I, I'm sure that I would have said, you know, I play water polo at Michigan. I, you know, I'm an English major. I, you know, or I think maybe history of art or something at the time, you know, I was really into as well. Um, and yeah, that would have been, that would have been the way. Cool. Well, and then certainly while you were on the national team that you were first and foremost water polo player. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What other identities were competing for your attention when you were growing up, like before you found water polo? Um, You know, I always was a really active, like I, you know, I played youth soccer and I played, I ran cross country and I played certain sports. Um, I took 10 years of classical ballet. Really? Um, Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm really grateful I had such a, you know, such a background in sort of like the culture and arts, you know, growing up, Um, you know, my sister and I both took classical ballet, like we attended a lot of theater production, you know, we grew up in a college town, so there was always that stuff there. Yeah. Um, which is pretty special. Um, so I wouldn't say there was like one thing, you know, that I was, was my thing. Um, you know, I liked spending time with my friends. I liked, you know, I liked school a lot. I liked, um, you know, ballet when I did it, I did a lot of music. I did a lot of swimming and you know. So a lot of ec- physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've just been really physical. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the same for your family? I know your sister uh, played water polo. Yes but- and no. I would say, I, you know, yes and no. I mean, 
I think compared now that I'm an adult and I see sort of like how it compares to a lot of other people I know. Yes. I think if you ask my sister or my brother, you know, if they felt like athletes growing up are really physical, you know, with all of the physical activities, they might say no, but you know how the way it compares to a lot of other people, I would say yes. Okay. So you went to college and you played water polo. That was important. Uh, what was your major when you were in college? I was an English major. English major. That's. Did Did you have any plans to use it, or what were you kind of thinking with that? No, I didn't have. You know, I was. I think the question I always got the most was like, "Oh, are you going to be a teacher?" And um, <laughs> that wasn't. You know, I wasn't passionate about becoming an educator at that time. And um, you know, I thought I loved to write. You know, I really loved to write, and I still love to write. And I often thought, you know, maybe maybe someday I'll make a career as a writer. But then, you know, I also sort of had this cynical voice I don't know where it came from but like you know I think it's hard to make a career as a writer you know and until you like catch your break yeah so to speak so um I just really was very consumed with water polo and I loved writing I loved English I love literature and history and so I kind of focused on just this taking classes that I liked that were enriching to me yeah um and didn't have much of an idea of what that would lead me into yeah so you wouldn't say that becoming a professional water polo player was like a, a long dream that you had had since childhood or even like your teens no it wasn't I mean that I would say you know I was always fascinated by the Olympics growing up like I watched the Olympics every time I mean I loved hearing the stories I loved you know following these athletes and their experiences but I never you know it wasn't like I'm going to go to the Olympics to play water polo since I was eight years old. I mean, we just didn't have the sport in Michigan at that time. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time I was in high school and playing, it was sort of like, okay, well, maybe I can actually like go to college and play the sport. You know, I sort of, it was, I was looking at the immediate step in front of me. You know, I didn't have the, the big end all be all dream. So how tall are you? I'm 6'2". When did you become 6'2"? Like, what, it, I, yeah. Were you really uh, I was tall, tall when you early. were? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. I know I was at least, you know, I was probably at least like five ten by my freshman year in high school, five okay. eleven. So, and does height help in water polo? It definitely can be an advantage. It's not a. It's you know, it's different in something like rather than something like volleyball or basketball, um, simply because the water can be a bit of an equalizer, particularly on the women's side. Yeah. Um, there are many, many amazing, phenomenal world class players that are not you know six feet tall yeah um but it can be an advantage especially as a goalkeeper right because i've seen this photo of you your like wingspan takes over like the whole goal yeah. <laughs> which is amazing do you do you have like an unnaturally or unusually large wingspan yes i think it has been measured at some point my wingspan is slightly longer than my height you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so you're not a square you're a rectangle but in a different direction right cool that's very very cool uh what's the most challenging part of water polo because seeing as how most of us are very ignorant or naive to mm -hmm. the sport can you tell me about it a little um, bit? Well, generally speaking, I would say, you know, the sport is incredibly physical. As a goalkeeper, my role is a little bit different. I don't have that same kind of contact, same kind of, um, you know, wrestling for position that many of my teammates do. Um, but, you know, the field players in front of me are always, you know, they're just constantly, like, grappling, you yeah. know. And um, you cannot touch the bottom, so you are treading water the whole time. It sounds um, like my worst nightmare. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Really? It's, it's an incredible, I mean, if in my opinion, it's the hardest sport in the world, you know? I think people would agree with me. <laughs> Just like the fact that you are like trying not to drown the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but you know, with my role as a goalkeeper, I mean, I'm not 
swimming as much, you know, up and down the pool over and over again, but right. I have to stay more vertical in the water, you know, throw myself in front of the ball that's coming flying at the cage. Yeah. What and, do they call know, it? The egg beater with your mm-hmm. legs? Is that what they call it? Yep. Okay. Egg beater kick. Nailed yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. I know some stuff. Uh, so the most challenging part is, uh, what would you say? Just the phys- just the like overall level of fitness required to play the sport well. Yeah. What is a train? What is training like for water polo? Like I know there's there must be an aerobic and a technical yeah. side to the training, right? Yeah. Your trainings are really um, broken down depending on sort of where you are in your competition season, whether you're playing at the collegiate level or playing on the you know national team level. Um, depending on how far out from your competition you are, the further away you are from your competition, you're really, you know, like building strength in the weight room. You're doing a lot of swimming, just getting your overall level of fitness, like getting that base fitness as much as you can. Right. That will sustain you then, you know, through your competition. So the goalkeeper position seems like it'd be the most stressful one. How did you handle the mental stress like during a game? Um, during a game is probably when I handled it the best, I would say. Um, but it took me a long time to get to that point. Um, and it was never like I got to like some level where all of a sudden the mental stress didn't exist anymore. You know, it's yeah. just, I think I got to this point where I, you know, I got to this point in my experience in my career where I realized just the constant work that it was to maintain perspective and maintain balance and focus during a match or during a game. Um, but I worked very closely with our sport. You know, we had a phenomenal sports psychologist through the USOPC um, who I worked very closely with, you know, some leading up to Beijing and a lot between the Beijing and London games. Awesome. And, you know, I really, I, I still <laughs> call him up from time to time to talk stuff out Good. of my life these days. Um, and, you know, just a lot of mindfulness, a lot of, you know, like reflection, a lot of... Um, you know, journaling and I don't know, almost like cognitive behavioral therapy in some ways, you know, to learn yeah. these practices that I can, you know, do throughout my career to, to stay, you know, sharp and focused and, you know, not too high or low. Yeah. So I've heard um, from, or I've read, I guess, from other athletes, like at your caliber, that the higher the stakes are, the better you were. Or like the more focused you could be. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you or kind of yeah, how? Yeah, absolutely. I think you get to this, especially once, you know, going through the Olympic experience a second time, you know, um, I think having, you know, you arrive to the village or you arrive to your tournament or your destination, wherever that may be. And it's not like, okay, all of a sudden I'm here and things are fitting into this system perfectly, but you just, you know what to do. And I think about that now actually in my own life, how that's carried over, because I find if there's like an acute stress factor, that's like something happened right in front of me. That's actually when I handle it the best, you know, it's this sort of like when everything's just kind of status quo and, you know, I have time for my mind to wander into all of these different spaces of what if and, you know, what's going on. That's when, you know, I actually struggle more with anxiety or, you know, identity. And um, but yeah, certainly at, you know, as an athlete, like when you arrive to these big competitions, you're able to just like see everything that you've been training for in front of you and adjust. Yeah, yeah you're mission driven. You know mm-hmm. what the mission is. You know what the goal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um we're going to get to uh, more of this kind of stuff in a little bit. Uh, it's It fascinates me, this idea that 
you know, while you're an athlete, it's really simple. It's so straightforward. It's not easy, um, but it's so, you know why you're doing what you're doing and how to get there. And if you put the work in, you'll most likely do well. Right. Um, all right. So looking back at your career, what were some of the high points of your career? And they don't have to necessarily be tied to winning the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's funny. It's not the first one that comes up. Um, you know, the high points of my career, like, you mean as I'm going through them or now in retrospect? Oh, I'll take both. <laughs> um, so, you know, as a college athlete, it was always about winning our conference. We were never in contention for national titles. So, you know, we won my freshman year. Uh, we won our conference um, in like a four overtime. Is that Big Ten? Period. Yeah. Well, we didn't, we don't have a Big Ten conference for women's water polo. So it was, it's called the CWPA, the Collegiate Water Polo Association. Oh. Um, and it's sort of a hodgepodge of like Michigan and Indiana are both in it. And then you have the Ivy League teams. And then, you know, you have a team like Hartwick College, um, which just recently cut their program. So they're oh, no longer no. there. Um, but it was sort of this like collection of Division One teams within the Northeast. Um, so we had to play, I think we played Indiana in overtime and then maybe it was Hartwick that we played in the final. And that was a big high for me. Cause that, you know, coming in <clears throat> to Michigan as a freshman, we were the second group to come in for this brand new varsity program, you know? So again, I mean, you know, from being a college athlete, you get to go, you know, to your college and you have this group that you're all of a sudden like a part of, yeah. you know, and it's pretty cool. And I mean, it, it makes so much sense to me why, you know, some people decide to join sororities or fraternities or some people get really into, you know, student government or whatever kind of that outlet is because it just makes a huge school like Michigan all of a sudden much smaller for you. And you're able to, you know, have this group that you identify with, you share schedules with and, um, you know, you socialize with. And um, so certainly in college, it was all about winning our conference. Those were high points and I again I was successful right away at Michigan you know I I was known as like that really good water polo goalie and <laughs> not many people knew what water polo was so it was kind of cool you know they could they could learn about this sport and I was like what made it good you know to them in some ways and that's uh, so cool yeah I mean looking back it's a really it's a really special thing like you know as part of the foundation of that team at a school like Michigan um, and that meant a lot to you to kind of because when I think about, you know, my own self, it gave me this sense of who I was, even if I wasn't sure that's really who I was, I was happy to take it mm -hmm. for being, you know, and, and just at a low level like I was, but like giving you that sense of I am good at something. I am somebody Totally. Absolutely. And I think for someone who never had like fully committed to understanding who that was before water polo, like that was a big deal for me, you yeah. know, to feel like, oh, I'm like being acknowledged for this thing that yeah, it's actually kind of fun to do. And, yeah. you know, like, and I'm good at, and, you know, I would get like a, like player of the week awards and, you know, like the student publications and stuff. I mean, it's cool, you know, and at the time, like, it's not like, it's not like my ego was driving my desire, you know, but it's just, it's kind of like, oh, all of a sudden, like things are starting to come together. You know, I understand this thing. I'm, a, I'm acknowledged for it. It's a cool, um, you know, it's a cool space to be in. Right? Yeah. Oh uh, man. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was one of your highs was winning your conference mm -hmm. in college, in college, even yeah. though you're an Olympic gold medalist right <laughs> I mean and this is again in retrospect I love it. um at the time that was a, yeah. that was a big deal but now yeah. like looking back over the entire you know arc of my career 
Um, highs would definitely be uh, our team in 2011 when we qualified for the London Olympic Games. You know, we played this crazy game against Canada. We So we had to win um, – Pan American Championships. So essentially, we had to, you know, the closest match for us at, at that tournament was against Canada. And um, I would say at that point, you know, if we played Canada 10 times, we'd beat them fairly handedly, at least, you know, seven or eight times out of 10. Like we were, quote unquote, the better team. Okay. Um, however, of course, when you have something like an Olympic berth on the line and a rivalry, um, an emotional rivalry, then everything kind of goes out the window. And we, um, we're playing them, and I think going into the second half, we were down five to two. Oh wow! And then uh, my teammate Courtney Matthewson, you know, phenomenally stepped up. I think in the fourth quarter and scored maybe four goals. Oh, nice! Um, something crazy, and we ended up tying the game. I will say uh, there was a five-meter penalty called. The game was tied, with no time left on the clock. So literally, it was like the penalty shot would be taken and the clock would be started and then the game would be over. So the score was tied and I made probably arguably the biggest save of my life. I blocked a penalty shot and we went into overtime. So had we lost that game, we would have had to go on. There would have been an an opportunity for us to qualify, you know, months later down the road. Um, But um, it's much harder to go that route, especially when you sort of quote unquote fail the first time around. Yeah. Um, but we ended up playing two periods of overtime. And then for water polo, you play two three-minute periods. If the score is, remains to be tied after that, then you go into penalty shootout, which is essentially like penalty kicks for soccer. Um, and so we went into a penalty shootout round, but it was like six rounds of sh- of a shootout. So a shootout is you have, I think it's five players per team. You go through it once. And then after you go through each player shoots once, if it's remains to be tied then you just go like one one and one you know so we went on for (laughs) god knows how long that sounds like an extra 30 minutes but we ended up winning and getting our births to the olympic games and um that was certainly a high of my career what about when you stood on the podium after you won in london yeah what's that like um it's hard to describe you know it's it's like a huge rush you know and it's special because you're there next to your team you know you're like holding everyone's hand and the anthem is playing and the flag is going up and at that point we've all located you know where our family is in the crowd and you're in this stadium where there's just so much energy and and everything you know that the tournament presented you with you know you're in that space which is really cool um and you know i mean it's just it's sort of like an out of body experience in some ways you know I, I looking back on it it's like a movie reel playing in my head you know and you finally it's like you get to take this exhale you know you finally get to like like this is it you know this is everything that you've been you know every every up and every down everything that you've put into this i mean this is this is it you know and it's hard to imagine, you know, because I've been there. I've been in that space in Beijing where, you know, we didn't win a gold medal and we lost that final game. And I mean, it's I've I've been in that exact same space and have it having had it been one of the most painful experiences of my life, you know. And that was a silver medal. Yeah. Right. I mean, isn't that insane? 
to th- like, and I, I can say this now because I'm like, like visualizing it, you know, but it's just like this pain, you know, I can say it was this acute pain at the time because it was, you know, you just feel like every, you just feel this big letdown to like your team, you feel, you know, and obviously now it's like, it's a silver medal. I have a silver medal from the Beijing Olympic games. I mean, yeah. that's incredible. I get, you know, there are so many lessons that that medal has given me arguably many more so than my gold medal, you know, and you know, that is the medal that has made me a better person. And that is a medal that, you know, really forced me to kind of face a lot of the stuff I didn't want to face about myself as an athlete and what I, you know, how I wanted to, the person I wanted to be, the teammate I wanted to be, um, you know, and so it's, it's really important, but it's crazy to think, you know, I, it's not a lot of people. I mean, that's not a conversation I would have with just anyone <laughs> down the street who asks me, you know, what is it like to win a silver medal? Right. Yeah. Um, Cause in a team sport, you finish with a loss, you know, yeah. and you feel like you failed your mission. Yeah. The, those of us that continued on to play through the London games, I think it can't remember if it was in 2011 or 2012 that we were, um, <laughs> our sports psychologist was like, it's time. And we all, you know, not the team as a whole, but that group, I think there were, um, I can't remember exactly how many, five of us, six of us. Um, you know, we sat and we watched that game together. It was in a dark room in our team oh. room. We turned the lights off and we watched that game. And I mean, all of us were crying. All of us were crying. Oh, I just none of us had ever, none of us had ever watched it. You know, I mean, there were a lot. I mean, there was just so much, and it's it's so sad to think about. You know, like now because I just like we were really hard on ourselves and I, there wasn't a person and I, I don't, I think for that team as a whole, and I, I, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I, I think that there isn't a person on that Beijing team that doesn't think about what I could have done differently. And I don't mean me, Betsy, but I mean, all of us self-reflect like what, like what could I have done differently that, that would have changed that outcome, you know, yeah. our coaches and our players, I'm sure, you know, I mean, that's sports, right? That's failure. And, you know, so we did watch that game and I, I, there are certain games that I'll pick apart. I mean, watching video of myself is not <laughs> my most favorite thing in the world. Um, but I luckily had some coaches, coaches that really forced me to do it and you know, I'm better off for it. Um, what was the most stressful moment of your career? That's mm. oh, kind of difficult. I think, um, the most, you know, I struggled a lot at the end of my career, deciding whether or not to continue to play. That was incredibly stressful. I, you know, I was really lucky in that I never experienced a major injury or had to have a major surgery or, you know, I didn't ever have a concussion or had a reason that I had to be like benched, um, you know, without unable to compete when I wanted to. And so I would say the biggest struggles of my career were often, um, you know, at times I would struggle with the value in what I was doing. And, you know, it seemed really, you know, I struggled with this in the beginning when I, when I started with the national team. And then I think towards the end of my career, you know, finding the value in, in what I was doing that, you know, it just seemed very self-serving to me at times, you know, like I was just so focused on myself and my performance and my, you know, and I could see, I knew like the greater value that, you know, being an Olympic athlete and, you know, the inspiration that this offered to, you know, our culture. But, you know, I think I felt my whole life growing up, I always sort of wanted a career that was in service of something bigger, you know, and 
you know, I, I got that a lot of ways from this experience, but you know, during those times where I was like, Oh, I just need to go to practice today and like train as hard as possible. You know, I didn't, I didn't see it in those moments. Yeah. And then walking away, you know, when I ultimately had to retire, decided to retire, um, you know, that was really, really hard knowing if I was making the right decision to kind of take that leap. How old were you when you started thinking about these more like big picture kind of meta questions? Um, you know, I, that was in 2000, I retired, I ultimately left in 2014. So it was really, I would say, you know, I struggled with it up right around the London games, you know, he was so focused on the London games in 2012. So that would have been just before I turned 30. Um, I turned 30 in 2013. Um, and so, you know, I, I knew that that was, you know, like I wasn't, wasn't questioning anything about, you know, that experience and, and seeing that through. But I think after, you know, I struggled because I really maybe in my heart felt like, okay, it's time for me to kind of see now what else is out there and what's bigger. But I also was drawn to, you know, we had just won a gold medal. I loved playing my sport. I loved my team, like all of this stuff that we had worked so hard for and created as a group. Um, I didn't want that to end just yet, you know? Yeah. So then tell me about how athlete identity, when you think of athlete identity and your identity as an athlete, what do do you think of? So um, when, when I think about athlete identity and some of the research that has been done on it, there's intrinsic and then there's extrinsic. So intrinsic being you, you know, it's an important part of your own identity that you are an athlete. This is something, you know, you think of, I am Betsy, the water polo player. Um, And then there's the external or extrinsic where other people kind of assign it to you. And that becomes an important part of your identity, like how you are identified by others. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about athlete identity, which of those two kind of speaks more to you or or how how do you think about that? Yeah, I can't say that it, it. I identify solely with one or the other. It really is a combination of the two. And in I think it took me a while, but it wasn't until I joined the national team and became the starting goalkeeper and, you know, had this thing that I was so good at. Then I was finally sort of allowed myself to intrinsically identify as Betsy, the water polo player. I think, you know, throughout my entire collegiate career and even after and early in my days with the national team, I always felt like, well, water polo is something I'm really good at, but I also really loved school. And I also loved, you know, a lot of things that weren't water polo. And I sort of felt conflicted. You know, I felt in some ways obligated to do this thing that I was really good at. One, because it had the, you know, it gave me the opportunity to pay for my education as an undergraduate. And, um, but you know, like I would say that there were certain experiences that I didn't have as an undergrad because of the commitment to my sport. You know, there were certain classes I couldn't take, you know, there were, um, you know, I, I, my come from a very sort of academic family, you know, my dad is still to this day teaches at the university of Michigan and, um, you know, both my brother and sister, older brother and sister went on to academic graduate programs right away. Um, and, you know, I sort of always thought that that would be me. Um, and it wasn't. And I felt like I, it couldn't have been me because I gave all of this stuff to water polo, you know. And so it was, I felt conflicted about it early on, I would say. Um, that intrinsic identification. But then, you know, once I really committed myself and like 
threw myself into this experience at the, you know, world level was when I was like, okay, like this is something, you know, I can do this and this is, you know, valid and this is, it might not be a PhD program, but this is something I am really good at and find yeah. value in. And, and then I began to identify it uh, more intrinsically. Um, but then when you came back after the 2012 Olympics, did you experience a letdown or did you, yeah, did you experience a letdown? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, totally there's a letdown and I mean it's in some ways it's like it's like a big for us we won a gold medal right so the first thing we did after winning that medal in London like I didn't go to closing ceremonies I didn't really go to I went to our team celebration that night and then I went and stayed in a hotel room in like Paddington Circle with the blinds drawn and slept for two days you know I was so tired I watched closing ceremonies on television I you know I was just wiped from everything um And, you know, then I had this coaching job lined up and I, you know, had a teammate's wedding to go to and, you know, the White House visit. And you sort of have these um, events a lot, especially, you know, winning a gold medal. You have these event after event after event. So you stay busy um, and it's kind of easy to think about like one event to the next. And it wasn't until all that sort of calmed down and I settled into this coaching job, um, which I think I was you know, that in and of itself was a bit of a challenge, you know, Um, just coming off of playing at a really high level and competing at a really high level. And then, you know, coming into a college setting where, you know, the level was nowhere near what I was, you know, experiencing and, and how to relate to these athletes who like they wanted to work hard and like wanted to be good, but they were college students. I mean, they had a million other things going on, you know, like in some ways, I don't even think I let go of it. Like, um, you know, I knew that I was going to carry on this experience and kind of hold on to it as much as I could. And so I don't, you know, in some ways I stopped living that life, but I don't, you know, I don't think I ever really turned it off with how I identified with it. What was the most difficult part of no longer being a full-time athlete? The structure, not having, you know, like not having, you know, what's next, not knowing how to figure out what's next, um, you know, not having the training plan, not having the short-term goal, not having, you know, all of that stuff is set up for you in a lot of ways as a, as a team athlete. You know, I, I think there's a little bit of a variety between sports, but that was really hard. What did you do then? I um, got into doing a little bit more coaching then. I coached with our junior national team um, at junior world championships. So I was in on the West coast for some training camps for that. And I, that was when I became pregnant. Do you think that becoming a mother, so that's this huge transition in and of itself, which doesn't really allow a lot of other noise in, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Do you think that helped you buffer your transition a little bit? Totally. I think it really kind of stalled the process for me in some ways. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, I can't like label that as good or bad at this point, but I just think, you know, becoming a mom, I had no idea what I was in for, you know, like that, like giving birth and that experience of meeting your child, um, and going home from the hospital with a newborn. I mean, it's just like mind blowing, you know, and that is a very big identity change. And so, you know, I am lucky in that I could, you know, still kind of work coaching camps and little things here and there that would sustain us minimally on my end. You know, my husband worked a ton um, and, you know, that allowed for that 
uh, transition into motherhood and that identity shift. So what was that like for you going from Betsy the Olympian to Betsy the mom? Um, you know, it. I think it was just really humbling. I mean, you look at, you know, as Betsy the Olympian, I was made it to this place where like I didn't have all the answers and I didn't know everything, but I really knew that I was good at something and could do something really well and find fulfillment from that and understand it really well in my mind and in my heart and, you know, know, you know, from my brain to my soul, how I responded to, to certain things and how I, you know, just who I was entwined with this sport. And then to go to something like motherhood where it's so foreign, you know, and there, I mean, it's not, I don't mean foreign in the sense of, you know, like there is maternal instinct and certain things, you know, there are like biology, biological factors, obviously that help with that, but it's just, you know, we don't live in a culture or a society that talks about how drastic that changes for women, you know, or support women going through that change. So you know, and it's complicated, right? Like I think about that now as, you know, going, going through my second time becoming a mom. And, you know, I've had this conversation with other moms because it's, I'm like, okay, is it our job to, to warn people? Like no one wants to like go up to a pregnant woman that's about to become a mom and let her know like what, how, how insane this is. But I think, you know, this, being able to contribute to the conversation, you know, and and give others that space and allowing it to be hard is really big. I've had this conversation with my sister a lot lately. She's 35 weeks pregnant mm-hmm. uh, with her first. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I think she went through this time period where she was angry mm-hmm. that nobody had told her how hard just pregnancy was going to be. Yeah, She was like pretty pissed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, it, it never dawned on me that... Um, yeah, I've never really put much thought into it, but it is it is really interesting. I, an unrelatable experience for somebody who hasn't done it, but Well, and also like coming, you know, coming out of being a professional athlete where, you know, your livelihood is so integrated with your physical body, right? Like yeah. you like I mean, I know so well like how to train myself. Like I just have this I, I call it, you know, I, the athletes that I teach, you know, I talk about somatic intelligence, right? Like I, the best athletes in the world are so intelligent. They're so self-aware in their bodies. Um, and in other areas too, you know, but I mean, just that, you know, Tom Brady knows like if he needs to like adjust his throw 10 degrees this way, he's going to move his elbow like six degrees that way. Right. And it's not that scientific. It's not like he's calculating that, but he can feel in his body, like what are release point changes and all of these things, you know? Um, and the physical change that you go through becoming pregnant and then, you know, going through the fourth trimester and just becoming a mom. And I mean, it's like there, I just have never felt so removed from my body, you know, in some way, like, it's just like a really big change, uh, that I still haven't fully wrapped my head around. Did you ever feel like you had to choose between being an athlete and being a mom? Yeah. I mean, well, I guess I can't think of a specific time that that's come up, but um, there have certainly been a theme, I would say, in the past. So my oldest son is three and a half. There's been a theme in the past, you know, two or three years of my life where 
Um, I've wanted to basically bury my past as an athlete and completely move on because it has seemed irrelevant to me, um, which is not at all fair, you know, but I, I coach a lot and I, you know, mentor young players and, um, you know, for a while when I started down this road, I thought that that was just a means to an end, you know, that it was kind of like, well, I'm only doing this because it's the only thing I can do, you know, like, um, and you know, that's why I was really looking hard at these nursing programs and these, you know, um, sort of clinical health programs because I basically felt like I, couldn't do anything else unless it was something that was, you know, like assigned to me. And then also, yeah, and I mean, assigned to me in a way where it was just like a really specific track for me to t- follow, like a training program or like a lesson plan or something. And then, you know, I just felt like, you know, water, it was just, again, like water pool. I didn't ever see it as something that I couldn't build a career off of if I wasn't an athlete and I didn't love, you know, coaching college. So what could I do with it? You know? Yeah. I wonder, um, yeah, I, does motherhood play, like, has that given you perspective to think about this? Like, how has motherhood made you look back at, at your past as an athlete? I mean, it's it has made me want to embrace it more because I think it's such an amazing thing for me to share with my family, right? Yeah. For me to share with my kids. Mm-hmm. And it's given me, um, you know, it's actually becoming a mom has made me love coaching young people even more um which is really interesting because just in the past like I don't know year or so like 2019 I've really started to kind of open up to the fact that like wow I really do love kids and I love coaching and I love um you know for me now it's really become about all of these lessons that I've learned from sport that I can pass on you know and um And I think if I weren't be, and you know, that just comes from seeing my kid, my children. I mean, obviously my youngest is seven months, but my toddler who's now really, you know, he's such a social guy. And obviously I'm not teaching him like everything (laughs) that I learned, like throughout my Olympic experience yet, but just seeing, you know, like how, how this, that experience is a platform that he can, you know, have fun with and enjoy and still like make him actually a really like good person and an enriched person, you know? for other people. Once you've, once you'd adapted to being a mom, to being a mother, so now you're two times over, mm-hmm. would you say like you've kind of reached a steady state, I guess now with that, like you're. Yes and no. <laughs> okay. That's Stupid the, well, question. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because I look at, you know, when I went through the Olympics a second time, I was like, oh yes, second time through, you know, you always, as a college you know, after graduating college, I was always like, man, if I could start over and do it all, you know, you do A, B and C different. Right. And so I was really grateful. I, I having gone through the Olympics a second time, not that I did a bunch of stuff different, but you just have, there's a level, you know, there it's what experience offers you, you know, the hindsight. And there are a lot of, you know, things that I didn't want to be the same as the first time around. Um, and so you have a similar, you have a similar, uh, notion in your head with motherhood that, you know, okay, I'm about to have my second. There's a lot of, um, I think the scariness of birth or the unknown of birth and like the experience in a hospital. And, um, I had a friend, a friend say it to me once, actually, she just said like, you don't feel as foreign around a new baby. You know, you know how to hold a baby, you know how to change a diaper, you know how to do all this stuff that, you know, you just seems bonkers that you don't know how to do the first time around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but then that the the transition from one to two is just a whole different animal. So yeah. um, we are in a we are getting steadier. My my newborn is seven months now, so um, we're you know still one one day at a time, but yeah. we're a little bit more even keel, I'd say. Yeah. So are you at the point now? So you you had this period where you know having kids delayed kind of revisiting this transition issue mm-hmm. and kind of so are you now at the point where you're going now what yeah I, I, very much so so I don't think that I ever really left that point throughout my experience of having a second okay. kid I really started making some progress before I became pregnant with my youngest now I felt you know a little bit of clarity and it's also been a lot more freeing this time around um, because I have had I've gotten to this point where you know, I've let go of this need for knowing my end point, I guess, so to speak. Um, because, you know, when, I, like, especially when we first moved here, I feel so funny because it's like every single person I met, I was like, well, I'm taking these science classes so I can go to nursing school or PA school, you know? You would tell them and, that? Yeah. yeah. And when people would ask what I was doing, you yeah. know? Um, and then, you know, slowly that changed to like, okay, I'm looking at this mental health degree. You know, I'm looking at this, I'm taking these classes, so I'm looking at this mental health degree. And now, you know, I'm actually still considering all of those options in some ways, but I'm, I, I'm really committing myself to this work that I'm doing um, coaching and mentoring and, um, raising my children and, um, allowing myself to be affected by it and seeing what opportunities that will present me with. And, you know, I'm still planning to apply, you know, this year to this master's in mental health counseling. Um, and, you know, I've started looking at some teaching programs, um, and, I've started just talking a lot more about this experience for athletes with their mental health transition. And, you know, I really have clung to a lot of these different ideas that I've had along the way, literally. And you can ask my husband because every time I'm inspired by something, I'm like, okay, this is going to be my thing, right? Like, this is my thing. (laughs) This is going to be like, I'm going to talk about mental health. I'm going to talk about youth sports and all the lessons. I'm going to talk, you know, I'm going to go to nursing school. Um, And it's, it's like looking at it now, I'm like, can see my own need for that so much. So anyway, I, I guess the point of this is that I'm just, I'm, I'm being so much more open and I'm starting to have, you know, conversations with different people from different backgrounds about, you know, I, I really just want to learn about what it is that I can offer this space, you know, instead of needing to be like, okay, I'm going to write a piece about it, or I'm going to, you know, go give a talk about it, or I'm going to, you know, like how I'm, I'm looking to learn about how I fit into this instead of, you know, and I don't, maybe that is as a therapist, maybe it isn't though, actually, you know, so, um, I feel like I'm simultaneously getting more clarity and, you know, less at the same time in some ways. Yeah. Cause it seems like it, you know, it tortures really successful athletes to not have a clearly defined, very impressive goal. Mm-hmm. What does your athlete identity mean to you now? What role does it play in your life now? Well, now I am, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the word. You know, I now I think it. I'm really trying to use it as something that connects me to other people. And, you know, 
it's not something that I'm, that's like, Hey, I did this amazing like thing that was, you know, like really spectacular. It's, it's more about like, Hey, I did this thing. And I've sort of like, you know, this is who I am since then, you know, and I'm allowing, you know, I'm allowing it to like filter into my life in a different way. And, you know, I've, I've just, it's been just recently that, you know, I've sort of had the opportunity to use it to connect with other people that have, have gone through similar experiences and, um, and you know what I can, you know, getting again, just contributing to the dialogue and, and using it as a platform to have the conversation with people. That's really beautiful. Connecting you to people. I I love that. Um, do you think there's enough being done at the college level, at the pro level, at the Olympic level to prepare athletes for the transition? It's hard to say. Um, you know, that is something that I'm actually focusing on learning a little bit more about right now. Um, I'm been in the midst of having several conversations with people from a variety of different. So I spent some time talking with a friend of mine at the USOPC. Um, and I'm hoping to get in touch with someone in more of an organizational role there to hear exactly what, what their perspective is on how they're helping with this. Um, and can you just tell us what does USOPC stand for? The U S Olympic and Paralympic committee. Awesome. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, I think it's complicated. I think that these organizations, you know, there is a lot that can be done, um, whether it's, you know, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee or a university or a professional uh, organization or national governing body. um, You know, I think that there are things that can be better about them, about this and this whole experience. And I think that it's a relatively new um, while it isn't a new experience, I think it's, you know, starting to get a little traction and it's becoming more and more important. Um, and it's not, while it isn't a universal experience to all athletes that go through these organizations, um, it's, you know, it's one that many of them do go through. And so I think it's really important to, to continue to like, look at areas of growth for this, um, And so that's part of the work that I'm really trying to do right now is just, and that's where I'm saying, you know, like I'm just having these conversations. Like I'm, you know, going to talk to some administrators from a large university soon uh, this week, actually. And then, you know, get on the horn with, you know, a friend of mine who I know is on the board of the USOPC and, um, you know, really just not for any other purpose than hearing, you know, how they view, like, so what do they think about this issue of how athletes transition out of their sport and, you know, how can this institution play a role in supporting that? Um, and I think that that, um, you know, I just want to know because it's been, you know, over 10 years since I graduated from college and it might be completely different than what I have in mind. Right. Um, and it's even, you know, and I know a little bit about, you know, I'm, I, I get emails from, you know, the Olympians, uh, you know, uh, collective or 
club, like let's say Millipins Club, but like the <laughs> you know whatever it is, the the players organizations through the USOPC, and there are some resources there. I don't think you know I think that there are different ways that they can be executed um, to make them a little more accessible to athletes, and um, you know I'm just curious about about what is in place exactly and you know how we can make that more accessible to people that's cool that you're doing that yeah and so this is where again like I sort of thought my role in this movement you know I'm looking at this therapy degree like okay I'm going to become a therapist and I want to you know work with athletes in transition and that might be something that I do but right now I just want to you know I feel like there are a lot of different ways that this could develop for me and this could you know materialize for me um but I just I need to start by by learning about everything that's out there first love it all right a couple concluding questions um what did it feel like to be inducted into the 2019 hall of fame for USA water polo Mm -hmm. um it was pretty mind-blowing or it was just kind of a whirlwind because I went to that you know I got notice I got notified of that like right around when my son was born in this early spring and you know I went to that event the hall of fame induction when he was like 10 weeks old or something oh, wow. so um you know even just standing up for my acceptance speech I was just so um you know I it was hard for me to articulate what it meant and you know for me as someone who grew up in Michigan you know, like playing this crazy sport that so few people had heard of at the time, you know, to go on and become a two-time Olympian and, you know, like an All-American in college and win an Olympic gold medal and, you know, coach, you know, with our national, our Olympic development program. Um, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's such a dream, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, and it's interesting, you know, receiving an award like that as an individual, because, everything about my experience, you know, has been about being part of a team. I mean, really like I know talking early on in this podcast about, um, you know, getting acknowledged for what I've done, doing something well and like being good at what I do. I mean that obviously like that is cool. Don't get me wrong, but like everything that has made this experience so enriching for me is what it has taught me about working with a group of people, you know, and what can be accomplished when, you know, you bring people together for something, you know, like people from very different backgrounds, people who might not have much in common otherwise, you know, and, and everything that you can create and experience, you know, with that. I mean, it's just really been a beautiful, beautiful thing that I've been able to be a part of. And so that has, um, that was a really special award. So when you look back at your career, what does it mean to you? What do you feel like your legacy is? I mean, it just, for me, it means it's a lesson in the phenomenal things that can happen when you work well with a group of people and demand the best from yourself, you know, and not, and I don't want to say demand the best for myself in a sense where it's like, I need to be perfect every day or I need to, um, you know, like always be the best at what I'm doing all of the time. I mean, like, demanding the best for myself by working through the stuff that's really difficult to work through (laughs) and, you know, going back and watching the game two years later and, and looking at the things you don't want to look at. And I think that that's what being on a team this close has taught me is that 
you, you know, you can't run away from the things you don't like about yourself and you have to, you know, really work through it. And it doesn't mean you solve it or you fix it, but you're just, you're there with it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, I don't know if that's much of a legacy, but, um, just in that, you know, I mean, it's, it's about, it's about opening you up, you know? I love it. Well, Betsy, thank you so much. This is really awesome. And that was my interview with Betsy Armstrong, the world's most decorated water polo player, a two-time Olympian, and mother of two. Yeah, her story really illustrates the challenges that pretty much all elite athletes have in trying to find a value for themselves after their athletic careers are over. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine going off of winning the Olympics maybe a couple of times and then finding something that has the same extrinsic value afterwards? It's, it's crazy. I get it. And athletes that make it as far as her clearly have this standard of excellence that they can't get rid of, nor should they, I think. But it, I think it ends up torturing you a bit until you find some peace with what you're doing. That's all for this week. If you liked today's episode, make sure to post a review wherever it is you downloaded this episode from or on iTunes and tell your friends about it. As of now, this podcast is self-funded, so if you like what we're doing, you can go to our website at www.humbledpodcast.com to make a donation. We really appreciate it. You can also sign up there for our newsletter, and we want to hear from you. If you have any suggestions for a story or you have a subject you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at hello at humbledpodcast.com or reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook. I also want to extend a huge thank you to Claire Collins, who is thankfully back on the East Coast, and to Brad Gulick, who's in charge of our website and branding. Next week, we'll be back with Keith Smart, Olympic silver medalist in fencing. It was probably the, one of the worst experiences of my life because all of these guys on my team and my coaches, they were about to make a lot of money if I had just scored one more point with bonuses and endorsements and... They literally saw like all this money and then zero. It led me to uh, quit the sport. Wanted nothing to do with the Olympics. I skipped the White House trip, uh, everything. I, I was like, I'm done. And our first podcast that was recorded in front of a live audience at Chelsea Piers in Brooklyn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then.